Sex and Murder, a cult killer paranormal podcast. Welcome everyone to the Sex and Murder podcast. Today we'll be talking about the mutiny on the HMS Bounty. In 1789, Captain William Bly lost command of his vessel, the HMS Bounty, to a band of mutineers. Fed up with Bly's control, they set him adrift on a boat along with half the crew who were somewhat loyal to him. Over the next two episodes, we'll be having a look at the reason for the launching of this expedition, the sail to Tahiti, the mutiny itself, and a splitting story where men were left to drift and men who commandeered the ship for themselves. But before we delve into anything, let's acknowledge sources. The main text I'll be referencing is Man Without Country, a true story of exploration and rebellion in the South Seas by Harrison Christian. Supplementary research material was also pulled from the journals of William Bly, James Morrison, and Edward Young. The last ocean to be tackled in the Age of Discovery was the Pacific Ocean. Even though the Dutch, Spanish, and Portuguese had sort of sniffed around there, even in the mid-18th century, most of the Pacific was still uncharted. In 1488, Portuguese explorers rounded Cape Horn, the most southern tip of South America. And in 1519, the Spanish sent five ships under Ferdinand Melligan to sail through or around South America. Melligan believed Asia was much closer to the Americas than it actually was. After a voyage that took almost four months, a staff crew, who had reduced to rats and sawdust for nourishment, reached Guam and the Philippines. Of the 270 crew on those ships, only 18 returned to Europe. Melligan himself was killed by a poison arrow in the Philippines. Between the early 16th century up until the mid-18th, the Pacific Islands remained the domain of the Polynesians. The Spanish had charted a couple of islands during this time, but for the most part, Europe avoided unnecessary trips through this area. Long times at sea without assured ports and provisions would spell disaster for all but the best prepared explorers. Even Australia during this time was only visited a couple of times by the Dutch, who skimmed mostly the west coast and didn't bother charting rest of the land. Following naval domination of the Spanish and French, Britain began setting its sights on this smattering of islands. The Dolphin, under Captain Samuel Wallace, was sent to document the Pacific Islands to make contact with the locals and establish trading posts or routes. King George had also set a secret mission for the Dolphin. They were to look for the fabled Terra Australis. Now think... El Dorado, but instead of a city of gold, it was a continent that many of the Europeans believed held the equivalent of gold that they had found in the Northern Hemisphere. The logic being that the world would wobble or be off kilter of some sort if there wasn't a cache of gold in the Southern Hemisphere of the Pacific Ocean. The 18th of June, 1767 was the date Captain Wallace spotted Tahiti. It would be the first recorded contact of the island with whites. Wallace hoped they were friendly since 30 of his men were under deck, gums bleeding and teeth falling out of their head from scurvy. If the islanders rejected them, they would have to limp the boat to a Spanish outpost in the Mariana Islands 
it was a detour of about 8,000 clicks that would take a full day's flight in the modern world. It would be nothing short of a disaster if he had to make it that far. After six days of gauging the island, the dolphin sounded the bays and found a suitable spot to weigh anchor. It wasn't long before the Tahitians were in their canoes, hundreds of them, rowing up to meet the dolphin. The Tahitians offered chickens, fruits, pigs, all of which were exchanged for nails. You see, iron obviously being difficult to come across on the small islands of the Pacific, they saw the value in it. The crew were no doubt distracted by the prospect of fresh food, but also the women that exposed themselves to the rowdy sailors. Little detour here to note that the Polynesian people came to the islands sometime around 1600 BCE, and being a seafaring people, had populated nearly all the Pacific Islands by 300 CE. We know that they sailed further and traded with the native people of South America because sweet potato uh, was an island staple for many of the Polynesian people. The name of the plant in Polynesian is Kumara, whereas the locals of Peru call it Kuma. Trading with people outside of their culture wasn't exactly a new concept to them. So with that, we have the dolphin trading nails for food. Distracted men on the ship didn't notice one of the chiefs give a signal, and the dolphin was pelted with stones from all sides. Of course, the Europeans did not like that one bit and returned fire with their own muskets before turning to the big guns, standard cannibals and grape shots that made short work of many of the islanders, both the canoes and onshore. On June 26th, the island was claimed for King George. The next day, the Tahitians gathered on the shore again, piles of stones behind them. The ship opened fire, a preemptive attack, out of fear that they would throw stones again. Cannons ripped through the trees, leveling much of the shoreline. A few crew went ashore and hacked up any canoes that hadn't been damaged. Now, it's believed that the Tahitians had seen the arrival of the boat as somewhat of a religious event tied to their fertility and war god, Uru. Unlike the West God, with a capital G that is, the Tahitian gods were much more human-like. You see, they could be seduced and challenged, and would demand sacrifice and tribute. Of course, it's a gross simplification and it lacks a lot of nuance, but if you think of a more typical Western, quote, pagan uh, pantheon like Greece or Scandinavia with the Norse mythology, where the gods were more powerful embodiments of a concept and that they could be good or bad or anything in between, you kind of get the idea. Now, either way, after this display of destruction, the Tahitians surrendered their weapons and gave the dolphin tributes of food and material. Virtually overnight, all the hostilities had ended. Wallace sent parties out into the country to gather supplies. The villagers they encountered welcomed them warmly. Even Wallace himself ventured to one and was personally attended to by a chieftain called Purea, who he would dub the Queen of Tahiti. After the month-long stay, the dolphin departed for England. Over the next five years, two other European powers would plant their flags in Tahiti, the French and the Spanish. James Cook would visit Tahiti in 1769 during his first voyage. He was officially following the path of Venus, but secretly he was looking for that Terra Australis. Cook would go on to chart a large portion of the Pacific Islands, 
as well as famously complete the charting of Australia. Now, what made Cook's expedition so successful? First off, he made the crew drink a mixture of malt, sauerkraut, and powdered soup, which warded off scurvy. And secondly, from his second voyage onwards, he carried a chronometer, which kept Greenwich Mean Time. Now, from what I understand, that means that instead of using lunar observations or just pure dead reckoning, he could compare the Greenwich Mean Time with the local time and then simply multiply the difference by 15. This would allow him to chart the islands to a higher degree of accuracy. Now, on these trips, Cook's ship had been fitted with gifts, uh, glass, axes, shirts, and of course, iron nails. The British had given the explorers the command that they were to do everything in their power to ensure first contact was peaceful. Now, I'm going to look at this in a very centrist view. Cook noted in his journals that the Maori were brave and noble people, and that contemporaries of him said that he showed a kindness to native people that others did not. However, he was known to burn houses in search of stolen goods, chop off ears for raiding vegetables, and was known to reply in brute force at the slightest hint of aggression. All in all, it seemed that as long as the native people were happy for him to trespass on their land, he would shower them with gifts and pretty much leave them be. In Tahiti, he had some clashes. The sailors shot an islander dead after he snatched a musket from them, and two crew members had deserted the ship to live on the island with a couple of Tahitian women. Cook held the local chief's ransom until the sailors were given up. It was this sort of ransoming, which seemed to be a trend for the European explorers, that would lead to his death in Hawaii. Okay, now it's time, after a little brief history lesson, to get to the HMS Bounty. Lieutenant William Bly, a short man with a pixie face and a scar across his cheek, had been with Cook during several of his voyages, and had been in charge of charting the Hawaiian Islands during the last voyage. In fact, Bly saw Cook overextend his welcome on the island, and get hit in the head with a club and an iron dagger thrust through his neck, all from the vantage of the resolution resting in the harbour. Perhaps in a scene of things to come, back home Bly found few supporters in the navy, and he was passed over for a promotion, even though two of his subordinates weren't. Bly's family was from the Isle of Man, and he met a woman also from there called Elizabeth Betham. Now it seemed only through Betham's family connections that he would get his following jobs on the sea. His next job was on the warship the Belle Poule. After the Battle of Dogger Bank, he was promoted to lieutenant. He then went on to command a fleet in the American War of Independence. When the peace treaty between the American colonies and Britain was signed, Bly was dismissed with half pay. The same man who organised his command on the warship also got him working as a captain on one of his merchant ships. In August 1787, Bly returned from Jamaica to find Duncan Campbell waiting for him with yet another job offer. 
Because America was the supplier of cheap food for the Caribbean slaves that worked on the sugar plantations, Britain needed to find another cheap food source and quickly, or they would lose the sugar plantations to the Americans who could undercut them with the cheap corn. A botanist named Joseph Banks had sailed with Cook during his first voyage and had tasted and seen the effects of breadfruit years before. He argued that the Royal Navy should transport a cargo of breadfruit plants from Tahiti to the Caribbean, thus removing the need for American corn. King George not only agreed to this plan, but gave Banks oversight for the entire project. Banks purchased a merchant ship and redubbed it the Bounty. This was the job Bly was offered. As he made his way home to prepare for the journey and say goodbye to his wife and now three, soon to be four, daughters. It was a logical choice to have him on the expedition. Not only did he have naval knowledge, he also had been to these islands personally several times under the command of James Cook, no less. This same time, the bounty was having itself a refit. Banks had reduced the crew to the bare minimum. Less room needed for supplies and sleeping slash recreation areas, and more room to store the plants. And there really wasn't much room on the bounty to begin with. Even though it had three masts, it was just over 27 meters long. See, she was rated as a cutter, the smallest warship size. This also meant that she was commanded by a lieutenant rather than a captain, which meant Bly would remain where he was and not receive another promotion. It also meant that the usual detachment of Royal Marines, who would act as like a security force, weren't included. Bly's private cabin was little more than a sheet that separated the mess and his cramped corner. Much of the area below deck had been converted into a greenhouse. There was a pipe system for runoff and a stove to keep the plants warm. The lack of promotion really got to Bly, who grieved to pretty much anyone who would listen. But he had a defiant streak and planned on making a perfect voyage without a single case of scurvy or physical punishment. But even before leaving England, there were murmurings that the ship was ill-suited for the long voyage through the South Seas. One Scottish Earl noted that, quote, It is highly improper for so long a voyage. Only 24 able seamen and 21 of all the others without a lieutenant or any marines, with any surgeon or a surgeon's mate. But if Bly's surgeon meets with any accident, they must want all medical assistance God knows how long, end quote. Now let's hope nothing bad happens on this voyage. Fletcher Christian was 23 years old, born in Cockermouth. England's naming conventions are ridiculous. He was the seventh of ten children, four of whom died before reaching adulthood. He grew up impoverished, his father having died when he was still a toddler, and he had to move in with relatives. He served as a cabin boy on the HMS Cambridge, the same ship Bly served on as a sixth lieutenant after which he joined the naval ship Eurydices as a midshipman and sailed to India. Here he basically did a speed run of a lieutenant's commission, earning the position in one year, which normally required six. When Bly was captain of the merchant vessel Britannia, 
Christian sailed with him on two runs. First as a seaman and messed with the officers, and the second as Bly's second mate. The bounty would be their third voyage together. Even though Bly trusted him as a competent second mate, later acting lieutenant on the bounty, Christian and Bly had very different ideas on how to lead expeditions at sea. Christian prided himself on knowing how to human Bly. Unlike Bly, he was very well liked by virtually every one of his shipmates. Of Christian, Bly wrote, He was strong, made of blackish or dark complexion. He also noted that Christian had a star tattoo on his left breast, and that he was bow-legged and prone to fits of perspiration that soiled everything he touched. Bly would be the only commissioned officer on the bounty. Below him was a smattering of warrant and petty officers, the sum of them had sailed with him and Cook on the resolution. Halfway through the sail to Tahiti, Bly would promote Christian to the acting lieutenant position. Before that, he was just simply a master. During the first half of the trip, the next in command would have been 35-year-old John Fryer. The midshipmen were a bunch of youngsters from somewhat rich families, making their beginnings in their naval careers. On paper, there was only officially two midshipmen, but family obligations saw Bly taking on several more as general seamen, though they would mess with the officers and enjoy officer privileges. Peter Haywood was one such boy. Fifteen years old, it would be his first time going to sea. He took himself a Bible and a prayer book on board, a gift from his mother, and these would prove crucial to recording the events on the bounty. Fletcher Christian was to be Haywood's mentor during the voyage, teaching him Latin and Greek. The two bonded, and soon a clique was formed with Edward Young, George Stewart, William Ethelston, and Robert Tinkler. 15-year-old John Hallett and 19-year-old Thomas Hayward, both on board simply at Betsy's recommendation, were both lazy and disliked by their crewmates. The boatswain mate was a seasoned gunner and artillery expert James Morrison. It was a lower position than the 28-year-old was qualified for, but he accepted out of pure want to sail of the South Seas. The voyage was also recorded in his journal. To round it out, there were 13 able seamen to actually do the grunt work on the bounty. Bly had a weird thing about physical features and would note as much of them as possible in his journal. And so we know Alexander Smith had pockmarks, uh, William McCoy had a scar on his belly from a knife, Charles Churchill had a crooked left forefinger, and Matthew Thompson was missing his big right toe. All in all, pretty much the entire crew was under 30 years old, and all the sailors were volunteers. When they were all rounded up and making preparations, every one of the sailors noted the cramped conditions. Under deck had the greenhouse, as I said, as well as pens for the animals. Now, too bad anyone over six foot three inches, for that was all the height they had to navigate. And the hammocks were given just 14 inches width to sleep in. Between the lower deck and the hold was a mezzanine deck that was mostly storerooms but did have some private rooms for the surgeon, clerk, botanist, gunner, carpenter, and the boatswain. Now, up on top on the deck 
it was cramped as well with a 23-foot launch, a 20-foot cutter, and a 16-foot jolly boat sitting ready on the request from Bly. With the ship ready and the crew assembled, Bly was keen to get the expedition underway. But the paperwork would take weeks longer than expected to arrive. By the time he got his sailing orders, the winds had changed and they would be pinned in England for the time being. Bly wrote to Campbell and you can be assured that he announced his displeasure at being held back. He also said, This has made my very arduous task indeed for to get around Cape Horn at the time I shall be there. I know not how to promise myself any success, and yet I must do it if the ship will stand it at all, or I suppose my character will be at stake. Had Lord Howe sweetened the difficult task by giving me a promotion, I would have been satisfied. The coast of Cape Horn, since its discovery in 1488, had become a graveyard for mutineers and marooners. The passage between South America and Antarctica was effectively a funnel. To one side, the winds fell down the Andes, and the other, the Arctic Peninsula, causing rogue waves that rolled with no island resistance through the Southern Ocean. These waves could easily reach 30 meters high, and become sheer walls of water by the time they hit the shallows around the horn. Passing around the horn at the wrong time would spell disaster, and many a ship's progress would stop weeks until more favourable conditions were met. And there are plenty of stories of tragedy around Cape Horn. Maligan almost had a mutiny after he sentenced a boatswain to death for sodomizing a cabin boy. Off the coast of Patagonia, he suppressed yet another uprising. Two of his captains were drawn and quartered, and another was left marooned on a small island. In 1577, Britain sent Francis Drake to raid Spanish colonies. At San Julian, a point of no return before the Strait of Melligan, Drake was met by sun-bleached bones of Melligan's mutineers. On board one of his ships, Drake was convinced that a crew member named Thomas Daughtry was a witch and a conjurer of storms. Daughtry was beheaded, and Drake would hold the head up to the coast, announcing, Behold, the head of a traitor. In 1741, the Royal Navy ship Wager lost her squadron after passing through Cape Horn. Some of the men broke into the spirit room and drank, like, all the rum. The shore crew fell into debauchery, and the surviving crew mutinied against their captain, David Cheap, after he shot an officer point-blank in the face. The captain and his loyalists were then marooned on an island. Of the marooned and mutineers, 140 returned home, including Cheap. Now, through a legal loophole that was later closed, the mutineers were acquitted from any wrongdoing. Finally, on the 23rd of December, 1787, the bounty launched. Christmas Day, the crew were rationed extra issues of rum and had some plum pudding. Because of the late launch, the bounty would be in the same position as the wager was when they passed around the horn. It didn't bode well that even before they hit South America, they were battling storms. Boxing Day saw the great cabin flooding 
and the stern windows collapsing. Seven hogshead of beer were swept overboard and casks of rum spilt, their contents running all over the deck. In early January, the bounty anchored at Santa Cruz. Bly sent Christian ashore to greet the governor and let him know that the bounty needed repairs and provisions. Bly also offered a salute with the guns, provided that the governor returned the salute with an equal number of guns. The governor declined, saying that he would only return the same number of guns to the men of equal rank to himself, a snub that Bly called extraordinary in his journal. The dick measuring contests this time were incredibly stupid. Bly had been to this port before with Cook, but this time he had to note how pricey the food was. He did buy, however, some region-famous wine for Banks upon their return. They were at Santa Cruz for a week before returning southwest across the Atlantic. In April, Bly sighted Tierra del Fuego, and there they were stuck for pretty much a month as they tried to go around the Cape. In addition to bad winds, a cold snap knocked the crew about. Heavy snow and ice and the bounty sick list spiked to eight as men's cracked hands started to bleed. On the deck, the crew required ropes to stand up straight as swells lashed about the ship. Peter Haywood wrote that it was the most, quote, violent storms that I suppose were ever experienced, unquote. This poor kid had been named Masthead, so he sat up at the top of the masthead during these storms. Now, I don't get seasick, but it does make me a little queasy thinking about standing in the masthead during a violent storm just being thrown about. I'd imagine it, it'd be a little nauseating. Haywood also says that Mr. Peekover, the gunner, had never seen anything like it, and he had sailed three times with Captain Cook. On the 22nd of April, Bly admitted defeat and changed course to take the longer route to the Pacific. Now, he sailed around the Cape of Good Hope, the most southern tip of South Africa, sailing east instead of west. After rounding the Cape, Bly wrote a letter to Banks, lamenting the time that he lost, that he would have been able to make it through Cape Horn if he had just launched when expected. He also boasted in this letter about how he hadn't required to dole out a single punishment to anyone on board. Sending that letter off, they made straight to Tahiti. Now, during this leg of the trip, the surgeon, Thomas Huggin, proved to be a little bit of a problem to Bly. Now, up until now, he had proven himself a little bit of a drunkard and would die as they reached Tahiti of, quote, intemperance and indolence, unquote. His carelessness caused the death of a seaman named James Valentine. Valentine had a general ailment that he went to hugging about, who bled him as a cure. Valentine's arm would become infected and he passed away due to this. Huggin didn't tell Bly about Valentine's condition until he was more or less dead. Now, Huggin evidently had a little bit of a bee in his bonnet when it came to Bly's command since he formally reported that Valentine had died of scurvy. Now, you can imagine Bly would have been furious, and he had the crew drinking the same potion James Cook had on his voyages, and the ship was washed down with vinegar and aired out with fires. Once a week, the crew were assembled and inspected. 
the watches were extended and the crew were able to get a full eight hours sleep instead of the typical four on four off system that ships usually used. On the stretch of voyage to Tahiti, Bly became rather tyrannical in his approach. He said that the sailors could not be trusted and had to be watched like children. Their leisure time was strictly regimented and there was a mandatory three hours each evening for dancing sessions, whether you liked it or not. Two men complained of aching joints and refused to dance. They had their grog cut off. Huggin would, rather amusingly, also diagnose these achy joints as scurvy. And it wasn't just the seamen that Bly was angering. He had fallen out with most of his officers as well. Taking on water and wood, they had stopped at Van Diemen's Land, now Tasmania, for two weeks. The native Aboriginal population didn't seem to care much for parcels of gifts, and Bly called them the most, quote, miserable creatures on the face of the earth. Bly would order the carpenter William Purcell to join the woodcutting gang. Now, under Royal Navy rules, the carpenter was charged with reporting a ship's condition and carrying out repairs. Purcell was not required to do the work of a common seaman. Not only was he forced to take a lowly job, Bly would go on to criticise the carpenter's woodcutting. Purcell could not hold his tongue and quipped that Bly only came ashore to find fault with him. Purcell then stormed back to the ship and Bly called out, I'll put a rope around your neck. Bly later ordered Purcell to help load water caskets into the hold and Purcell straight up refused. And the exact reason may never be known, but Bly then had a falling out with John Fryer. Fryer had refused to sign the expense books unless Bly presented a certificate saying that Fryer had done, quote, nothing amiss during his voyage. Bly gathered everyone around and read the Articles of War and then commanded Fryer to sign the books. Fryer signed the books and then muttered within earshot of the crew that his signature may be cancelled hereafter. Indeed, like Morrison wrote in his journal, the seeds of discord had been sown by the time they landed in Tasmania. Now, anyone who's read a history book knows that the early European visitors of pretty much anywhere disturbed equilibrium of wars, heraldry, harvests, and gods, like they did in Tahiti. See, Tahiti's society lacked a central political structure. No chieftain had absolute supremacy over an entire island, and even within a village, they were more like a common man that simply was appointed to mediate disagreements and act as a spokesperson for the village. In Cook's expeditions, dozens, dozens of chiefs would pass under the ship every day, each with their own varying levels of authority. Now, of course, as had been the custom in Europe for well over a millennia at that point, they tended to treat the Tahitians as a single political unit, and so they would take the chief of the particular area that they anchored in as being the supreme authority over the entire island. Wallace had started with Perea, 
and had inadvertently enriched the surrounding districts, such as her brother-in-law Tutar, over in Matavai Bay. Two years after Wallace Cook then arrived, Perea was no longer in charge and her people had been raided and crushed by the surrounding villages. Cook came to regard Tudaha as the chief man of the island. Tudaha's reign was short-lived though. Cook's next visit saw his great-nephew Tu as the chief of that area. Cook kind of just went with it and gave him all the gifts. And Cook himself admits in his journal that the choice was more or less arbitrary, saying, quote, We know not how far his power extend as king, nor how far he could command assistance of the other chief, or was controllable by them. The surrounding chiefs despised Tu, and refused to help him wage war with the Morea people on a neighbouring island. Cook heard that his presence in Tahiti was the only thing stopping the Tahitian chiefs from attacking Tu, and they had planned to do so as soon as Cook departed. And so, Cook issued a threat. Anyone who attacked Tu when he was gone would suffer his wrath upon his return. Cook would never return. And that brought Tu five years of freedom, after which destruction reigned on the village and Tu was forced to flee into the mountains. It would be another decade after that before the Tahitians had their next white visitors. The bounty was limping by the time it got to Tahiti. There was cracks in the facade of order and discipline that the Tahitians expected from the British sailors. Ten months since being on land last, the bounty saw Point Venus on the horizon. As they pulled closer to the mainland, canoes came out to greet them. Tahitians, like the expeditions before them, brought food and materials onto the boat. Bly nailed up a code of conduct for the crew of the ship. First, no one was to tell the Tahitians of Cook's death in Hawaii. The Tahitians remembered Bly from the resolution and asked about Tute, which was the name that they had given for Cook. Bly told them that he was living well in England and the bounty's gardener, David Nelson, even told them that Bly was Cook's son. The second rule that they had was that they weren't to talk about why they had arrived in Tahiti. The plan was to let it come up naturally in conversation and trade only some worthless trinkets in return. Two was brought aboard and gave the greeting of joining noses with Bly. Now this would have looked rather ridiculous because Two had to bend to make it happen since he was a full uh, foot and four inches taller than Bly. Two, who was now going by the name Tiana, also brought his wife, Aitia. She was a warrior, surfer, and wrestler. Pretty much everything you could want in a woman. Tiana was no longer ruler, but he was working as somewhat of a regent king for his eldest son, who was six years old. Tiana and Bly became Teo which is sort of like a, a bonding friendship where Tiana adopted the Tahitian name for Bly, Parai, and offered his wife to the lieutenant, who appears to have turned her down. Tiana asks Bly for support with the surrounding chiefs, who were sure to attack him again as soon as the ship left. Bly said that he would have taken revenge if it didn't mean jeopardizing the mission, and instead suggested that he win the chiefs over with gifts. Bly worked on the political issues, and after five days, the topic of breadfruit came up. 
Bly asked if there was anything that they would like to send back as a gift to King George, where the response was, anything within our power. They then gave him a list which included the breadfruit. It only took him a couple of days to collect almost 800 breadfruit shoots into pots. The bounty would remain anchored at Tahiti for the next six months as they waited for the rains and winds to pass. The ship was divided into two parties, the shore party and the island party. The shore party was led by Christian and totaled nine men. Christian, along with Peter Hayward, four armed seamen and two gardeners, located at Point Venus. This team lived ashore during those six months. In front of them were Tahiti's mountains and behind them was the bounty. The island party was entertained regularly by heva, or concerts put on by the islanders, including music, dancing, and elaborate pantomimes. Christian's shore camp was also a plant nursery and a trading outpost, off-limits to the Tahitians except by permission. William Peckover was in charge of trading with the islanders for official provisions. Peckover had been with Cook on all three of his voyages and spoke some Tahitian and knew quite a bit of the local customs. David Nelson nurtured the breadfruit seedlings with the help of his assistant William Brown. Nelson also knew some Tahitian. He was a student of Joseph Banks and had sailed with Peckover and Bly during Cook's third voyage. While these men tended their duties, the other men of the camp had relative freedom away from the scrutinizing eyes of Bly. A Tahitian-English pidgin language developed between the islanders and the men, and they got tattoos featuring local motifs across their chests, hips, and buttocks. A chief called Moana was invited to stay with them in the camp, less so hospitality and more so for the reason of deterring theft. A week after the ship's arrival, somebody had stolen a rubber gungeon from the small boat. The sentry on watch was held responsible for the theft and given 12 lashes while many Tahitians were on board. This wasn't the first flogging of the trip. Matthew Quintal had a whipping after Fryer reported him for mutinous behaviour. Robert Lamb also got 12 lashes for suffering his cleaver to be stolen. Isaac Martin received 19 lashes for striking a Tahitian in an attempt to retrieve a stolen iron hoop. And the punishment wasn't confined to just the crew. Bly had one Tahitian flogged a hundred times for attempting to steal a compass and some bedding. The Tahitian was then put into irons, but he managed to escape with a marlin spike, much to the ire of Bly. One night in January 1789, three crew members deserted the ship. Charles Churchill, John Millwood, and William Muspratt took eight muskets and ammunition and took the ship's cutter. Muspratt had been flogged a few days earlier for neglect of duty. The men transferred themselves and their equipment into a canoe and sailed to a small island north of the mainland. Stormy seas prevented a spiteful Bly from reaching them for several days. When he did, he stormed the beach with his guides 
cutlass drawn, ready for blood. When he got to the shelter the men had erected, they crawled out and surrendered. Their gunpowder had gotten wet and they had resolved to hand themselves in. The men were put into irons and flogged in two separate sessions. Two days after the second flogging, someone had slashed the bounty shore cable. A single rope was all that prevented it from floating away. Bly assumed it was one of the Tahitians, but he would later write in his journal that he thought it was actually one of the crew. Tinia's younger brother, Vertua, had slashed it out of anger for how Bly treated his tail, Thomas Haywood. Because Haywood had been on watch when the deserters stole the boat, he had been stripped of his midshipman rank and put into irons. Vertua had prepared for Bly to issue the lashings. He had stationed himself behind Bly, war club in hand. Now in this instance, Bly didn't issue any lashings, and so Vertua didn't act. Bly had been one command away from being assassinated. As the crew grew to dislike him, so too did the Tahitians. While Cook had a physical presence which the Tahitians respected, Bly frankly did not. Fletcher Christian, however, was held in high regard, not just physically imposing, Christian could do impressive feats of athletics that would entertain the islanders, like balancing a musket on an outstretched hand, and Bly had to work hard to change the Tahitians' view by telling them that Christian was his teo teo, or his servant. It was also his command that turned the Tahitians away from him. He was always anxiously poking at things. Sailors were allowed to keep private stores of food, but Bly began confiscating all the pigs that were brought on board. Fryer protested to his pigs being taken, and Bly told him that he would, quote, take nine-tenths of any man's property, and he dared to see who would say the contrary. Islanders then took to bringing pigs aboard the ship while the commander was on shore. In preparation of setting sail in 1789, the Bounty had her cabins washed out with boiling water to kill the roaches, and cats were set free below the deck to hunt for mice. The ship was stocked with wood, coconuts, bananas, and pigs for the voyage home. Two costumes were brought on board intending to be gifts to King George. Bly, sympathetic to Tinia, gave him two muskets, a pair of pistols, and a good stock of ammunition to defend himself from the other villagers. During their time there, Queen Aita had learnt how to load and fire a musket with, quote, great dexterity. Soon after they left, the HMS Mercury would take on provisions there, and she awed them by shooting the ship's buoy on the first shot. According to Morrison's journal, all hands received double allowance of grog as the ship bore away in the evening, and everyone seemed in rather high spirits. Their destination was Jamaica, but the men were talking about home as if they had already been there and they were now on their way to England. But excitement wore out as Bly's temper got worse. Whenever something was found at fault in the crew, the brunt of his displeasure was aimed at Christian. 
Bly's affinity for public humiliation would be the reason Christian revolted. But there was another issue that caused other men to follow him. See, Bly was in charge of the food store, and he was getting rather stingy. Okay, let's break down first what sailors were accustomed to. Navy sailors expected to get a precisely measured allowance of food and drink. Among their daily entitlements was a gallon of beer and two pints of grog or watered-down rum. Now, if one food item was served in lieu of another, there was a fixed table of equivalents. For example, one gallon of beer was equal to a pint of wine. If their rations had to be reduced for whatever reason, they could expect monetary compensation upon returning to England. Now, in this, men could build up credit if they decided to forego rations. Now, all of this would be meticulously recorded by the ship's purser, who was responsible for dispensing food stores and was supervised by the captain. The bounty was not big enough to spare a man for purser, and so the role fell to Bly. This caused some tension in his role, since as a captain, the Admiralty had reduced his salary because you could make up the coin as a purser, and the purser role got it as a bonus if there was a surplus of provisions. Thus, Bly became fanatical over food. He dragged out all the food in front of everyone when he thought someone had stolen cheese. No one had. In fact, some cheese had been removed prior to them leaving from England under Bly's own orders. As they moved into the tropics, sailors refused spoiled pumpkin in lieu of bread. It was simply not an equivalent. The men began to complain to Friar that it seemed the meat hadn't been weighed correctly. Bly called everyone again and informed them that he was in charge of the provisions and that he was law and that anyone who complained about food would get a flogging. The quantity of boiled wheat and barley was often so small that brawls would break out in the galley. One fight had the cook break two ribs, another the master at arms got his hand scalded in boiling water. Normally, men could complain to the captain about an unfair purser, but there was no instance of that here, so the men kept a silent tally of every transgression. Now, it's worth noting that Bly could have passed this role on to someone else. In fact, his idol Cook had been both captain and purser on all of his voyages, but Cook had himself a servant who was delegated the task and thus mitigated problems that arose on the bounty. Three weeks out of Tahiti, they stopped at Tonga for provisions. The crew went on the sly and traded their iron for clubs, spears, mats, private stores of yams and coconuts, which they hid all around the ship. Despite the welcome trading, the Tongans threatened and stole at every chance that they got, angering an already seething Bly. On one of his previous voyages, Cook had flogged some Tongans for stealing, including the chief of the area. They were on the verge of attacking and killing Cook before he left. These people had been burned before, and understandably, they were watching the visitors with suspicious eyes. On the 25th of April, Bly sent a party led by Christian to gather food and wood. He allowed them to take muskets, but insisted that the arms stay in the boat and not be carried ashore. 
The man walked inland to the watering hole, and the Tongans terrorized them, managing to knock off an axe and an aids. The sailors aimed their muskets, but the islanders just mocked them, holding up their clubs as if they were rifles. Christian circled the party back without filling up their water casks. Bly called him a coward upon report, and asked if he was afraid of these naked savages when he had a weapon in his hand. Christian replied, What good are arms if your orders prohibit their use? Now, what's rather frustrating about this is that a similar command had been given to the crew of the Resolution, and Bly himself had broken command to fire cannons, killing a handful of natives. And we know that the lieutenant was angry with him, but there was no recorded mention of punishment. The day after that, Friar was the one in hot water. He, along with Quintal, was left ashore with the boat while Christian's party again went to retrieve water. They were handing out nails when Quintal saw a young chief raise his club behind Friar. He called out to him and they scared the Tongans off. The two booked it to Christian and told him to hurry as the group of islanders descended on them, pointing spears and throwing small rocks. Back at the boat, they found one islander had dived under the water and stolen the cutter's grapnel. Friar was the one who had to report the stolen hook, in a rather cavalier attitude since there were like half a dozen or so grapnels on board. Bly took some local chiefs hostage and demanded the return of the hook. The Tongans didn't really seem to care, so Bly had the chiefs peeling coconuts while the bounty sailed for open waters. Up on deck, he threw insults at the officers and even aimed his pistol at Seaman William McCoy, threatening to blow a hole in his head for not paying attention. A couple of Tongan canoes trailed behind them, and nothing happened up until that point, so Bly let the chiefs go, giving them some presents as they climbed down into the canoe. Food once again became a problem on the 27th of April, when he was examining his coconuts piled between the guns on the quarterdeck. Some of them were missing, he was convinced, and began interrogating everyone. When he got to Christian, Christian responded that he had no idea, but he hoped that Bly was not thinking him guilty of stealing them. Yes, you damned hound, I do. You must have stolen them from me, or you could give a better account of them. God damn you, you scoundrels. You are all thieves alike. Bly ordered his clerk to stop the grog and cut the yam rations in half. The seamen were convinced that Bly would go hunting for their stash of yams next, confiscating them as he saw fit. And that is where we end this episode. Next episode, we'll be picking back up with the mutiny itself and the fallout from that. Until then, this has been the Sex and Murder podcast. Thank you for listening. <laughs>